and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we're doing on Thursday afternoon. Joining us from New York City, where he was at the 76ers Celtics clash in Philadelphia last night. Second time they've played in Philly in a week. Interesting schedule choice. Tim Bontemps. Hello, everybody. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, home of the unstoppable Dallas Mavericks, who wipe the floor with those very pesky Washington Wizards, who could probably be renamed the Washington Generals and nobody would know the difference, is Ben McMahon. Howdy, partners. Wendy just coming in spicy over the top with the, the cheap shots. Draymond Green style, baby. <laughs> no, Draymond didn't come over the top. He came from the back. Uh, all right. Uh, before we get going here, we've been teasing this for a while. And finally, we have approval to share the details. The Hoop Collective is headed to the in-season tournament, and we are announcing officially that we will be doing our first live show. My God, it might be the last. I hope it's the last. Oh, can't dang. believe I agreed to it, but I'm going off the script. We're doing our first live show on Friday night, December 8th. That's in between this in-season tournament semifinals and finals. Our first ever live show. It'll be at the Jimmy Kimmel Comedy Club at the Link in Las Vegas, right on the Strip. It's going to be at 7 o'clock. And apparently tickets get you food and merchandise, Ooh, wow. which I didn't know about till just now. Wait, we have merchandise? Who am I? Well, how do I get some of that there merchandise? <laughs> that's, right, that, that's what I was about to ask. Especially, yeah. that, especially that free merchandise part. Howdy, partners. How do I, I thought Kbon was going to be making merchandise for us for the pod. I didn't realize we had like already commissioned merchandise. Look at Apparently that. we do. So Look if you're that. in Vegas or planning to come to the in-season tournament, come out and check out the Hoop Collective at Jimmy Kimmel Comedy Club, December 8th. Now you may say, well, how do we get tickets? Hmm. Keep an eye on social, our social media stuff for a link in the short. I was going to ask how you get future. tickets. So that's good to know. I, I oh, you don't ask, get any. I was going to ask more about the merchandise. Like, are, are there shirts? <laughs> or, or is it the good stretching material? Like, there's a, I got a lot of merchandise. There's, there's little keychains that we're going to have that where if you squeeze them, it plays your theme song. Ooh, just for you. <laughs> uh, listen, you know the theme song is not officially licensed by the Hoop Collective, so I doubt that's. The case. <laughs> I doubt you are wrong. Okay, so um, please don't make this. Will be a please, lot of fun. Please don't make this the mistake that I think that it is. Uh, okay. Oh, hey. Wendy will take at least three selfies per person with your ticket. Three selfies with <laughs> all different angles, uh, autographs, baby smooching, whatever you need. Yeah, babies are not. I'm not sure babies are permitted to Kimmel Comedy Club, but uh, what do I know? All right. So now that that's out of the way, that's in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to it. Going to be in Vegas. I haven't been in Vegas for uh, in December my whole life, so God knows what that's going to be. What's that? Me neither. I've actually never been to Vegas outside of Vegas Summer League, believe it or not. Well, it'll probably be nicer in December than in July for Summer League. All right. Anyway, so we had an active uh, week in the NBA. The big thing coming out today or came out on Wednesday night, uh, Draymond Green suspended five games for the chokehold on Rudy Gobert. Let me just say that um, I now think that Draymond Green is in the discipline repeater tax. Oh, yeah. Um, as Joe Dumars, when he made the suspension announcement last spring, um, when uh, Draymond stepped on Demontis Sabonis in that series with the Kings, now obviously that was a mildly, depending on where your allegiance lies, that was a mildly controversial uh, decision uh, to suspend him for that game. You know, during the um, 
during the uh, highly contested playoff series. At that time, Dumars said, the reason this is happening is it because of Draymond's past behavior. And so here we go, another announcement where it's not just implied, it is actually in the press release. Yeah, first paragraph. Implied to be from Joe Dumars, speaking on behalf of the league, that this the the weight of this is you know the, the suspension was made more significant because of his past transgression. So I, I quote Draymond, the, the length of the suspension is based in part on Green's history of unsportsmanlike acts. That is from the league press release. Yeah. So like look, Draymond before this season started had been ejected 16 times in his career and been suspended four times, three by the league and one by the Warriors. The Warriors still gave him 100 million in the offseason. It's like None of this is new, but going forward, Draymond needs to be aware that he will not be treated the same as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And including this, this is, by the way, that this is the longest suspension in the NBA for an on-court act in more than a decade. Do you remember when the longer suspension was seven games in 2012? Uh, okay. No, I was going to say that I was going to go back to the, uh, the mellow scrap when he was in the I- I just looked it up. It was another guy who had a very long history of on-court issues, which was Better World Peace in 2012. Right. Got a That was when he gave suspension. that flying elbow to James Harden's the side mm-hmm. of his head. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, they said that his past acts was sort of a similar situation. So mm-hmm. um, I would just say that uh, Draymond, I, you know, I said probably four or five years ago, that every time Draymond comes into a game that he carries baggage with him, he's he's sort of got like a half technical foul when the tip-off happens that irritates him, but it is true. And, you know, he should know that going forward. Whether he agrees with it or not is really immaterial and the league doesn't really care. And Joe Dumars, as you guys know, Joe Dumars and Draymond Green have a very good personal relationship. There's a whole Michigan connection there. They've known each other for many years. He's, I believe... Draymond has called Joe like a, either a mentor or a father figure to him. And this is Joe Dumars handing this down. So this is, this is with, you know, that kind of relationship. So I, I just think that should be the way it is going forward. That's kind of all I have to say on it. Well, listen, well, go ahead, McMahon. I, I was going to say there's Draymond's history as far as ejections and, and, and these kind of things, suspensions. And then like he's had a petty beef with Rudy Gobert for years now has has made a habit of taking any chance you could get to take verbal cheap shots at Gobert. And in this case, he had a chance to <laughs> take a chokehold, you know, give him a chokehold. And then like the defense of, oh, Rudy had his hands on Clay's neck. Like, come on, man. Like that, that was silly. You can say, hey, when you're breaking up a scrap, kind of the unwritten rule is get your guy out of there. And so you can say, okay, so Rudy was in violation of that little unwritten rule, but he was clearly trying to break it up. And then like Draymond, it wasn't that Draymond was trying to get him off of clay. He was trying to choke the man because that chokehold lasted a long time after clay was out of the picture. Look, Draymond Green has been out of control for years. He was out of control when he stomped on Demonis Sabonis in the playoffs. He was out of control in 2016 when he was flailing his legs all over the place. He was out of control when he punched LeBron in the groin and got himself suspended from an NBA finals game and turned a series that Golden State would have and should have won around and allowed and cost the Warriors a championship. And this guy has been doing this for years now. He sucker punched his teammate in the face last year, and it was essentially excused away. Not one of his suspensions. He didn't get suspended for that. 
I mean, it's it's he, just he didn't play in a preseason game. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a ridiculous. It's been a ridiculous series of behavior, and we just spent the pod on Sunday talking about how in the games on Saturday and Sunday he was out of control in the games, just watching the games. It was obvious to see he was unhinged a lot of the well, time. And it's part of the package of Draymond. And you know what? It's been a hell of a deal for the Golden State Warriors over the course of his career. Like, say what you want. I'll take, what is it, five suspensions? If he's a major factor in four championships, that's a deal you'll take every time. And by the way, was huge for them in the back. He was terrible in the first half of the 2022 finals, but was huge for them in the back half of the 22 finals and was great in game six when they clinched it in Boston. So, like, they their eyes are wide open on this. Well, I mean, they are and they're not like I, I thought that was a joke. What Steve Kerr did the other night after the game, trying to excuse away what Ru- what he was doing by saying, oh, you know, guys behind the bench said Rudy Gobert had his arms around Clay's neck. Like, I mean, come on. What are what are we doing here? Like, I, mean, I understand. He was kind of tepid on that. Let me just say, I, I hate to interrupt your run there. He was like, I only watched it one time, though. He was like, <laughs> like, come on. It, it, it's it, the guy sucker punched his teammate in the face. And the the discussion about it was, oh, well, you know. Yeah, maybe there's a both sides to this. And look, we've seen Jordan Poole this year with the Wizards. Obviously, you know, look, he, you could say whatever you want about it. He did not deserve to get punched in the face. And that became the theme of last season. And the entire season was pinned on Jordan Poole. Oh, it's all Jordan Poole's fault that the Warriors lost. Draymond a month ago talking about how, oh, man, the chemistry this year is so much better. It's so much better to be around this team this year. I mean, no wonder this guy is acting like this because he's been given impunity to do whatever he wants. For years. And, you know, it, it's just, I, I think it's disappointing. It's gotten to this point. And I'm glad the league at least gave him five games. You certainly could have been, I certainly would have been fine with more. I didn't think there was any chance it was going to be more than five. And I do think I they thought it was going to be them. two or three. I was actually I, surprised. I mean, look, five. the fact that they yeah, haven't had one too. suspension this long in over a decade, I, I think it does send a real message for how mm-hmm. the league has adjudicated things. And they did clearly say, hey, look, this is not acceptable behavior. But at what point is somebody going to look at Draymond Green and say, you cannot be acting like an absolute lunatic all the time on the court? Well, like, you know when, what? Is this, when is enough enough? Here's the deal, though. Draymond can put a championship ring on both middle fingers, extend them in the air, and still have two left over. I know. So there's going to be, if I understand the definition of impunity, he's going to have some of that. <laughs> <laughs> I We'll say that's this. a good cap. Um, that's a good capper on the discussion, I think, right there. Well, I, one thing, just because this is a bugaboo, because you know about you know 2016 finals. I wrote a book about it. a bestseller. Draymond's Draymond's suspension in the 2016 finals did not cost the Warriors the finals. I see two things that are always said about that. Number one, that he was suspended for that hit on LeBron. That's not true. He was suspended for accumulation of flagrant foul points. Yes, the NBA knew when they assessed that flagrant foul that it would result in a suspension, but he got suspended just as equally for kicking Stephen Adams in the groin. It was just as he did for body slamming Michael Beasley in the first round against the Rockets, which was not necessary, absolutely not necessary either. That's one thing. The second thing is everybody forgets that Andrew Bogut got hurt in game five. And I'm telling you, Andrew Bogut's injury, which cost him two and a half games. Yep. Hurt the Warriors more than not having Draymond in game five, especially in game seven, where Steve Kerr was running 
I love Andy Verajao. Anderson Verajao and Festus Azili. One of my favorite guys ever. But yep. having Festus Azili and Anderson Verajao out there in the fourth quarter mm-hmm. of game seven and not having Bogut for the whole game was way more. And anybody who says different, I don't believe, follows the game or watch the game. And I can't believe the Warriors to a man would say differently. Well, they may also- not say it. You know, publicly, just because they want to defend sure. Draymond and they want to say they were screwed, but there's no way if you know the game that you cannot say that Bogus. Oh yeah, no, it, I, yeah, I was there too. I agree with you completely. I just, I don't, also don't think they got screwed. It, Draymond put himself in that position completely, but even then, it was explained away and excused. But again, away. It's even just the if way it's you always think been. that they were screwed, even if you think that it was unfair that he got suspended for that game, right? It's not why they lost. Well, so my point on that is that Draymond's pluses outweigh the minuses he did not cost him a 2016 finals in my opinion that didn't help you can only get away with so many conies checks before the league's got to come down on you and before karma comes back on you and that was a factor and if you remember there was a couple on Stephen adams which led to one of my favorite quotes of all time when he was asked if he thought they were intentional after the second one and he said it's not that big a target mate I was well, you and I were both standing there for that one. That was one of the funniest moments I've I've ever witnessed. One of the greatest interviews I ever have done in my career was with Steven Adams. I did a profile on him in about 2015 or 16. And first off, he said that his hometown in New Zealand, which was next to a sulfur, a lake that had a bunch of sulfur in it, he said his hometown smelled like farts because of the sulfur in the lake. And then the other thing, well, then he told the story about his first day of practice with Kendrick Perkins. And uh, he was sort of bodying Perkins. He was a rookie with the Thunder. And like on the second possession, Perkins turned around and hauled off and elbowed him in the chest, like the hardest elbow ever. And he growled at him and said, I'm the only silverback, which (laughs) even Stephen Adams thought that was hilarious, you know, at the time. But Stephen Adams is the youngest of 17 kids. Youngest, obviously, probably the biggest and strongest, although his sister is a two-time Olympic gold medalist shot putter. Uh, for New Zealand, but he was the youngest kid. He used to get bullied by his brothers. And he would always, when he would get bullied, when he was a little kid, he would always call for his dad and his dad would come out of the house and tell his brothers to knock it off or knock their heads together or whatever. And then when he was about six or seven, I can't remember his last, his dad passed away. His dad was older when he was born. The man had 17 kids. It was, you know, tough. And after that, his brothers, when he complained, used to beat him up even more. So he learned you don't react and you don't complain when you get hit in the nuts, quite frankly. <laughs> Which is why people are always amazed that Stephen Adams can get hit in various places and like never react. What so, about anyway? Yeah. Oh, uh Jackson uh, pol- uh corrects me. I apologize. He was one of 18 siblings, not 17 siblings. And all of his brothers are 6'10 and 6'11. All of his sisters are between 6'5 and 6'6. So my guess is when those guys were beating him up, it hurt. But he, uh, one of my favorite uh, stories I've ever written was the profile on Stephen Adams. I absolutely, I, you know, and I would be amazing to actually go talk to his brothers and sisters. I didn't get to do that. But anyway. Get well soon, Stephen Adams. The, the Memphis Grizzlies miss you and so does everybody else. Yeah, there's not a there's not a reporter that's ever, or a person that I know of that's ever been around Stephen Adams that hasn't thoroughly enjoyed the experience. Rotorua, by the way, I think is the name of the city in New Zealand where he grew up. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. Okay, Bontemps, the game that you were at uh, Philly-Boston on Wednesday night was a very interesting game, not just because 
matchup of the two best teams in the East. There's a couple of things to take away from that game, but first I want to hear what you took away from it. Yeah, I mean, on the Boston side, it's a reminder of the depth they have. When you don't have Jalen Brown and you don't have Chris Porzingis, you just can have Derek White put up 27 points, including 14 in the fourth. I think Derek White's the most underrated player in the league, and this game was sort of an example of why. When you look at his two-way ability, him and Drew Holiday, I think, are the two best defensive guards in the league. You have them playing in the same backcourt. And then when you look at this game, the Sixers made a nice run at the start of the fourth quarter, got it down to one. Derek White hits a three, gets in the lane, hits a runner, gets in the lane and drops off a perfect pass to Luke Cornett for a foul, three straight possessions. Meanwhile, at the other end, he made a huge defensive play, turned turned the possession back around in Boston's favor. And then Al Horford just comes in off the bench after playing 20 minutes a game and not doing a whole lot and just puts up 14, nine and three has five blocks, hits four threes, doesn't turn the ball over. And Joel Embiid, who he's tormented for years, is minus 25. And while the Sixers were clearly tired, because probably the single worst team you can play, the front end of a back-to-back is the Indiana Pacers, who play the entire game like an F1 race, and they're flying around. And seeing the big fell after the game Wednesday night, he was pretty tired and out of gas. But it was it was indicative of the depth that the Celtics have and the ways they can attack you in a lot of different ways, late in games in particular, when they're going right. And on the Philly side, obviously, again, no Kelly Oubre, no Nick Batum, a couple key pieces out, but they are really limited when Tyrese Maxey is off the court. He's playing a ton of minutes for a reason. And in the 10 or 12 minutes a game, he's not playing. They don't really have another guy to run the offense on the roster. They're trying to do it with Patrick Beverly. That has not gone very well. The minutes when Joel Embiid was on the court last night without Maxi went very badly for Philly. And I would suspect between now and the trade deadline, if the Sixers aren't able to do any kind of major roster upgrade, whether they could get a guy like Monty Morris or I think even former Sixer TJ McConnell might help getting some kind yeah, of let's stop. Point. Let's stop right there. Let's stop point. right there. Yeah. Okay. That's that's you know, you wrote a story about this game, and I almost thought it was I mean, other than how good Derek White was in the fourth quarter, and he's been a great I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe I'll regret saying this. I think he's been a pretty high-level clutch performer during his career, uh, Derek White. I think he's got not much that Derek White doesn't do wrong on the court. He's just right. very solid across the board. You pointed out in your story just about how much of a difference it made when uh, uh, Maxie went off the court. So, And uh, granted, they're doing very well as an organization. I'm not saying that this is something they got to do to survive. Um, but this is to beat the Celtics at his four out of seven, this is going to be an issue. So in the first quarter of this game, it was a three point game. Maxi goes to the bench seven minutes in, in the last five minutes of the first quarter with Maxi on the bench, they get out. They, the Sixers got scored by 12. It's a 15 point game at the end of the first quarter in the third quarter happens again. Maxi plays the first seven, eight minutes of the, of the third. It's a three or four point game. Maxi goes out. End of the quarter, it's an eight-point game. So Maxi's plus nine in this game, and the Sixers lose by what they lose by ten. Yeah, uh, I think it, I think it ultimately was ten. I mean, it was a two-point game. Yeah. It was a five-point game late in the fourth quarter for a couple shots. Went right. Out. So, because I, I think the reason I'm bringing this up on Tempsey, you brought it. I'm coming from your your reporting and your observations about the game, but I think there's just been this belief that Maxi's been so good that that they're fine in the East with out having doing anything else. No, the Sixers need to make another move. They don't necessarily have to acquire Zach Levine. I don't think that's somewhere they're headed, 
but they need to make another move so that when Maxie's off the court, they are able to function better offensively. That's what I just wanted to, you know, interject there. Yeah, I would say to the, the what Tyrese Maxey's ascension has done is it has, to me, removed the idea of Joel Embiid leaving Philadelphia from the board. Because if you look at the other options he could go to, there is not a player like Tyrese Maxey on any of those teams. And he is the perfect co-star, the guy they've been waiting to find to put next to Joel Embiid going forward. So obviously the most important question has been answered now in the affirmative. But they are a incomplete roster. They do have, you know, really outside of Tobias Harris, there's not another, and especially with Kelly Oubre out for a while, there's not another consistent scoring option for them. So they can definitely run into some ruts. But I, I think the real question now is, like you said, do they try to pursue a Zach Levine type third player? I think that would be a very bad idea. Or do they try to maybe go get two or three more good players and have your two stars and a bunch of depth around them. I think that's going to be the interesting question for the Sixers to look at over the next three months. And I think the latter path, there might be a lot more options for them to do that. And it also then would then allow them to say, resign DeAnthony Melton, who's a very good player, resign Tobias Harris at a lower number, who's playing great this year. And then all of a sudden you've got these two stars, you got a bunch of depth. You probably have more trade assets going forward anyway. And that that team could make a lot of sense. So that, that I think, you know, watching the game last night, to your point, when you see, even though they were on a back-to-back, you watch them play a team like the Celtics, they're a couple players short of being a real title contender. And I think that, to me, if you're Daryl Morey watching that game, it's like, all right, we need another secondary ball handler. We need to get some more wing depth on the perimeter to hold up against a team like this in the playoffs. And now they've got three months to go out and try to find that kind of stuff before the trade deadline. Yeah, the difference with Maxi on the floor, 123 is the offensive rating. That'd be the best in the league, the best in league history. Uh, when he's off the floor, it is 101.3, which would be the worst in the league by several points. And mm-hmm. this is where the the departure of James Harden is felt. The 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 great thing about it is, hey, it's Maxi's ball now. He's the guy running the offense. He's has all the room in the world to flourish like he has. But last year, when it was Harden was the guy running the offense, they were always going to have one or the other on the floor if they were both uh, available. And now it's like you've got Maxi, and then you're kind of scrambling. Um, and you know he's he's playing a lot of minutes because of that as well. So it, it's not just for those ten minutes per game or so, but it's trying to make sure this guy doesn't run out of gas when when you need him for that finishing kick of the season going into the playoffs. Yeah, those minutes at the end of the first quarter, just real quick. Joel Embiid's out there with Pat Beverly, Furkan Korkmaz, Daniel House, and Marcus Morris. Like, that's just not that's not going to be good enough to beat a team like the Celtics in a playoff series. And obviously, they are missing a couple guys, but even still, there's just not enough depth there for them to go up toe-to-toe with, you know, teams like Milwaukee or Boston or the elite teams in the West if they want to get ultimately where they want to go. Yeah, Nick Batum's been away from the team for a couple of games. Obviously, Batum would probably be in that spot and Batum can can do some things as a playmaker, but they yeah. need they need even more. So. They need more scoring. I mean that's that like McMahon said, that's the thing. When Maxie's off well, that's the court, why I think it's people just are Joel jumping and a bunch of the, guys that aren't gonna right. do it. Well, that's all. why I think people are jumping to the Zach Levine conclusion, you know, is that they need more scoring. And so 
yeah, Zach would bring scoring, but I don't know if Zach's going to be bring playmaking. That's not something that he. I would. Does. I would strongly. I would. I would strongly say that would be a bad idea for the Sixers. Yeah. Also, would, Zach Levine's on the books for 170 million next three yeah, or four I, years. Whatever. I would say there's two other bulls that I would much rather have than Zach Levine if I'm Daryl Morey making trade calls. Caruso would be tremendous for any contender, much less Philadelphia. But and then DeRozan would be, you know, obviously scoring, playmaking, and still saving your cap space for the summer. That's true. That's true. And DeRozan doesn't stretch the floor like others, but he sure does a lot that you like. And mm-hmm. he definitely is a playmaker. He's, you know, the thing about DeRozan that would be so attractive is that you could have no problem playing him alongside Maxi because he would fit right into what they what they do. You wouldn't have to, you know, if you traded for, like, I think Monte Morris is a very interesting name. I think Monte Morris is an underrated player. Um, uh, but Monty Morrison, you're not really going to play him and Maxi side by side effectively. Obviously, yeah, Drozd would cost good. more. Yeah, but... Morris is a very solid backup point guard. Yeah, that's yeah. that's again that's more the path of if you're trying to add three or four guys to sort of fill out a eight man rotation, you add a guy a high level backup like that gives you obviously if Tyrese misses any time gives you some flexibility there. And it just gives you somebody to run the offense because that's the thing. When you see, I mean, Joel's pa- passing better than he ever has the way Nick Nurse has this team playing. But a lot of it is also out of necessity because he has to have the ball every second he's on the court when Maxi isn't. And so taking a little bit of the pressure off of him would be beneficial. Yeah. All right. So um, we're still early in the season, but there's been a couple of players who are off to pretty awesome starts to this season that I don't think are necessarily uh, getting as much attention as they should. And, you know, some of it's because they play on teams that aren't excelling. Some of it's because um, they uh, just play in markets that we don't pay attention to. But um, I thought we would maybe talk about a couple of those guys who are off to really awesome starts. Um, First guy I want to talk about is uh, Bam Adebayo, who is so far, you know, He's played 10 games. Um, the Heat uh, play on Thursday night at home against the Nets. Uh, so we'll see what happens in this game. But um, Ben Metabio is having an absolutely spectacular season. And he is having the best offensive season of his career. He's obviously been one of the best defensive players. Like I voted for him for defensive player of the year two years ago. Um, it irritates the Heat and Bam that he doesn't get more attention for his defense. But he's obviously known as a guy who is an excellent defensive player who can also, you know, run your offense. He's one of the handful of guys in the league that can bring, that can take a rebound and bring the ball down and run your offense. It makes it extremely a valuable player. And the Heat, um, despite losing a couple of starters in Gabe Vincent and Max Struess, despite not making uh, a major trade either for Dame Lillard or for Drew Holiday, despite having Tyler Hero, who was there leading offensive player go down with an ankle injury have won six games in a row coming into tonight's game against the nets. Um, and Bam Adebayo is driving their offense. He's averaging 23 points a game. He's shooting 53% from the field. Um, he's, uh, getting to the foul line the most times, eight times a game, the most times in his career where he shoots 80%. He's averaging almost 11 rebounds a game. He's averaging four assists a game. He's averaging a steal and a half a game. He's averaging a block and a half a game. Um, and he almost never gets in foul trouble. Uh, very versatile defender, can switch all over the court, um, has been an all-star in the past, and generally, knock on wood, has been has stayed healthy in his career. 
and extremely valuable player. Um, in the past, you know, has not always risen to the occasion at the highest level, did not have a good finals last year. When he played well in the playoffs last year, the Heat were basically unbeatable, um, but he didn't always play well. He didn't have the greatest finals. He was going up against Jokic. Um, but whether it's that performance in the postseason or whether it's the necessity of what the Heat needs, he has been awesome. And Bam Adebayo right now, if we're selecting All-Stars 10 games in, which is ridiculous, Bam Adebayo would be a great A Eastern Conference All-Star in my view. Very hot, very hot take. Very hot take. <laughs> no, look, I think Bam Bam has been the most versatile big in the league for quite a while. When you talk about his play at both ends and sort of his ability to do anything that he need him to do, he's he's not at the same level as guys like Embiid and Jokic because he's just not that level of offensive player. The interesting thing about his season thus far is a lot of the improvement he's been making has been generated by pretty big jumps in his shooting on mid-range shots. He's shooting a lot more jumpers from 10 to 16 feet than he has in the past and shooting them at a 50% clip, which is very high. And he's shooting 41% on long twos, which is a big jump from where he was before. So the thing that's always been the thing that's sort of come and gone with Bam. And when you talk about his inconsistencies is that when that jump shot isn't falling, all of a sudden his offensive game gets pretty limited because it's really just either being around the basket or passing. But if he can now become a reliable, high level mid-range jump shooter to go with being an elite ball handler and passer at that spot with his versatility on the defensive end. Then all of a sudden his offensive game takes a real leap. And then he as a player takes a real leap and it gives the heat another, another place to go on offense in these playoff games. when things grind down a little bit. So that that's the thing I'm going to bear that I'm going to keep watching with him is does that jump shooting sustain? Cause if it does, I really do think that makes him a different player because just gives him another weapon to go to on offense. But yeah, like he has been a tormentor of the Celtics for years, no matter who they've had at center, he's just throwing guys around in these conference finals games year after year. And is one of the few guys that at his size can switch on to guys from drew holiday to Jason Tatum and not really bad an eye. Well, and also like, he's one of the few bigs that is, perfectly comfortable guarding a stretch big like Porzingis and isn't going to feel, you know, like a, like a fish out of water yep. if he's out there on the perimeter and having to, you know, move around out there while still trying to, to impact things in the paint. Um, but the heat need him to be, they need him to have the best offensive year of his career, you know, especially with Tyler Hero out for however, however much longer with that ankle. Like we all know, Jimmy, misses a lot of games and kind of coasts through the regular season offensively. He's, he's, you know, really not trying to be the, the primary offensive guy on a night in night out basis. They need Bam to become this, you know, pretty efficient 23 point per game score. Um, Cause even with him doing this, they're a bottom 10 offensive team in the league right now. So this is out of necessity. When you just real quick too, you mentioned the Porzingis thing with Bam. A big part of why Boston traded for Porzingis was because in the playoffs, particularly against Miami, they would run into these situations where they try to attack these switching defenses, and guys like Bam could just switch on to Jim, Jason Tatum, or Jalen Brown, or whoever, and it wasn't really an issue. The Heat could deal with that. And if you go back and watch the first game of the year when these teams played. Bam couldn't really leave Porzingis. Yeah. And because of that, it totally changed the way that Boston could attack them. And that 
that was a prime example of why the Celtics went out and got Porzingis this summer to be able to attack guys like Bam and defenses like the Heat that have given them so much trouble in the past. By the way, you mentioned the Heat are a bottom 10 offensive team, McMahon. They, so they're 23rd in offense right now. Um, they were 25th in offense last year during the regular season. Yeah. Which they were a 500 team. That's kind of, you know. Well, um, and, then, and then they got, you know, their shooters got scorching hot for the first few right. rounds of the playoffs. And then, you know, oh, heat culture, heat culture. Well, heat culture, heat is, culture a, is a thing, but it's not the only. Three it's point not the shooting only luck, yes. Yeah. More Hoop Collective podcast after this. All right, next up, the guy. And this guy is getting a little bit more attention than uh, maybe some other guys, but uh, Tyrese Halliburton. We talked to him on the pod recently. Had a brilliant uh, two-game series against the Sixers this week, including 33 points and 15 assists with no turnovers in the in-season tournament win on Tuesday night. Um, he is. Uh, I wrote about him a lot. Did some talked about him a lot over the summer with Team USA. You know, he's been on the pod before a couple of times. He's, uh, you know, uh, just. Fabulous player, um, really coming into his own. Was an all star last year. He's going to be an all star this year. Anyway, he's averaging his numbers this year are crazy. He sniffed 50, 40, 90 the last couple of years. He's been, he's been basically 50, 40, 80 the last two years. Last year, he had 49% from the field, 40% from three, and 87% from the line. That's pretty, pretty good, especially when you're shooting 15 shots a game like he, like he does. He averaged 21 a game. This year, he's averaging 25 a game to this point, shooting 53% from the field, 44% from three-point range on eight a game. And, Good and God. how many assists? Uh, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> 93% from the from the line. Like He's like, yeah, I shot 87% from the line last year. I got to improve on that. 93% from the line, four rebounds a game, one, a steal a game, almost a block a game. Guy blocks shots. He's got great length. League high, 12.5 assists per game to two turnovers a game. A 6-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio. A little over 6-to-1, 12.5 to 1.1. McMahon, this guy has been just brilliant this year. And the Sixers are are, uh, 6-and-4. Sorry, the Pacers are 6-and-4. And and he's a big reason why. And they've been, uh, they're in great shape against his tournament. They're 2-and-0. Include wins over the Cavs and the Sixers, the two teams that are, you know, sort of favored in that group. And we could see Tyrese Halliburton um, advancing onward. They they play Atlanta next. I think if they beat Atlanta, I think they pretty much clinch it. But uh, this has been a terrific year for him so far. You know, you mentioned what he did against the Sixers. Here's something from our buddy Stats Williams. Halliburton scored or assisted on 135 points in those two games with no turnovers. 135 <laughs> points with no turnovers over two games. That's the most points generated in a two-game span without a turnover since turnovers have been an official stat, which is starting with the 77-78 season. Just to put it in perspective, and like what he's do- he's doing historical stuff. The Pacers right now, and you know, again, it's early in the season, but right now, statistically, they have the best offense in NBA history. And he's the guy who's driving that. And, you know, we've talked a ton about Anthony Edwards and, you know, this guy being the the best young American superstar in the league right now, all those sorts of things. There can be a discussion 
about who was the best player in that draft, Edwards or Halliburton. And therefore, there can be a discussion about which one of those guys, you know, you would say is the best young uh, American player right now. He is that good. And, you know, I saw Carlisle said this. My buddy Rob Mahoney from The Ringer had a story. But, you know, we've talked about this before. When Carlisle was with the Mavericks in that draft, the Mavericks analytics department had Halliburton as the number one player by far. That's when the Mavericks were trying to trade. They were dangling Brunson, 18 and 31. They dangled it to everybody. Nobody bid on it. And they were not alone among stats people, by the way. Like his stats profile coming out of college was off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and then like Carlisle has been just giddy ever since they were able to make the trade, um, which we ripped at the time. It's worked out better than I thought for the Kings. By the way, really by the good. way, it wasn't just as a point. It was never, from my perspective, it was never about Halliburton as a player. It was about people who thought Sabonis, like Bontemps, wasn't worth it. My point was Sabonis is very good. That was only that was one thing. I, I yeah, understood. no, no one, no one's, no one's arguing that. But the, I would say that the stance that McMahon and I had at the time, which was that you're trading a young potential star lead guard mm-hmm. for a very talented but limited big that has that leads you to have a limited ceiling as a team. I think has played out largely that way because Demonis Sabonis is terrific. And we're going to talk about the Kings more in a minute. But last year, they had a fantastic year and they lost in the first round of the playoffs, as Demonis Sabonis has done repeatedly throughout his career. And if you have Tyrese Halliburton as your lead guard, I think it gives you a higher ceiling as a team than if you have Demonis Sabonis as your anchor big. Yeah, and we've talked and he a was lot a two-time about All-Star in the East, and I said he's a two-time All-Star in the East, and you were like, well, it's in the East. Well, and, and the Kings... Now he's been an All-Star in the West. Well, but it's not... But Well, we uh, go Listen, ahead, man. The Kings aren't apologizing. They broke their playoff drought. They're fine. That's right. They're fine. And they have a but, dynamic, awesome lead guard there, too. But that trade breathed life back into the Pacers organization. Yes, but absolutely. It was Sabonis and Turner. It was time. They got unbelievable value for Sabonis. And, you know, Halliburton, you know, last year of his rookie contract, this guy is, I mean, can we say he's a superstar? He's knocking out. I think so. No question. No question. No question. And And I I I think, go ahead. You know, go ahead. I was just going to keep raving about him. Go ahead. (laughs) I, I, what I I was going to say was, I mean, I mentioned earlier that they played the Sixers on Tuesday, right? And I think, the Pacers, to me, have the ability to be emblematic of exactly what the NBA was going for with this in-season tournament. Because if you look right now, like Indiana's had a nice start to the year, right? We've talked about how they're the best offense in the league. Obviously, the one place Tyrese needs to improve in particular is his defense. His defense is terrible. The Pacers' defense is terrible. Um, so Hold they on, have some blocks and gets blocks and steals. He yes, be- he gets some he gets some blocks and steals and is not a, a good defender at all. And I I've been leading the Tyrese Halliburton fan club for a long time. He's a fantastic player. But Pacers are 7-4, and four, right? Off to a nice start. But you look at these wins they have over the Cavs and the Sixers. They're 7-4 and four in a regular 82-game season. They have wins over the Cavs and the Sixers. You go, oh, those are nice wins. But because they won those two games to start off their group play in the in-season tournament, now if they beat Atlanta on Tuesday, they're guaranteed to win their group. They're guaranteed to be in the quarterfinals and maybe have a home game, probably have a home game in the in-season tournament and have a real shot to go to Las Vegas. And if you're the NBA and you can have like Minnesota's leading a group, right? If you have Anthony Edwards and the Wolves as one of the four teams in Vegas and you have Tyrese Halliburton and the Pacers as one of the four teams in Vegas, you've got 
as you said correctly, McMahon, we did a top 25 under 25 a couple weeks ago. The two top American guys, we had Anthony Edwards second, we had Tyrese Albert in fourth. So you could have the two top, arguably young American stars in the league on a stage in Vegas on national TV where, let's be honest, this whole thing is really a marketing platform for the league. Yeah. And you get a chance to have a young, exciting Pacers team that's not a championship contender yet that will be happy to make the playoffs, but they get on this kind of stage, all of a sudden the whole wider NBA community gets introduced to Tyrese Halliburton and the Pacers, a team that on a night-to-night basis in the course of the regular season, you might occasionally see, but a casual fan watching at home isn't going to be introduced to the Pacers. Like Wait, Wendy, when's their national TV games? <laughs> January, th- I think it's January 30th. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, and that's the first time Tyrese will have ever played on TNT, as Brian wrote a good story about this summer, talking to him at Team USA. That could change the exactly. first week of December. Like, so to me, this is sort of, this is really, I think, could be a great thing for the league to give a, just a free push to a team like Indiana that if you yeah. watch them play, they're awesome. Every game is 140 to 135. They don't guard anybody. They're bombing threes all over the place. I Tyrese mean, plays like- super fast. He's passing the ball. Like, they're just awesome to watch. It's like they're back at their in their ABA roots, right? Yes. But, I mean, Halliburton is just uh, you know an elite scorer, passer, all those things. He's playing for a coach. Say what you want about Rick Carlisle, but he's had the best offense in NBA history before, and they're on pace to do it again. He's you know two different, absolutely brilliant young point guards, but did it with Luca. And uh, they're they're making magic happen again with Halliburton. And, and like you said, you can criticize the Pacers for being a bad defensive team, but I promise you this: if you watch them play, you'll be entertained. Oh, it's awesome! I mean, it's like watching Steve Nash and the Seven Second or Less Suns. I mean, that's that's what they're playing like, and he's playing like Steve Nash. I mean, it's it's awesome. So yeah, the, I just think it's got a really it's got a chance to be a really good thing for the first year of this tournament to have a couple of these younger teams really get a chance to pop in yeah. big stage. And, you know, I think if the Pacers did wind up getting to Vegas, if they do get a quarterfinal and win, I think it could be great because the more people that see them play and see them flying up and down the court, I, I think they're going to get a lot of fans really fast. All right. We mentioned the Kings a second ago, another guy who's having a tremendous start to the season. Now he's only played a handful of games because of the ankle injury, but I think we should highlight the numbers that De'Aaron Fox is putting up for the Kings. Obviously, he had a breakout season last year, um, but this year he's elevated his game. He's averaging 30 points a game. And what's really been different for him is three-point shooting. He Mm -hmm. is taking three more threes a game, now up to eight threes a game and shooting 36% on them. Now, that's not going to make anybody forget about Steph Curry, but that adds a bit of uh, another dynamic to his game. He's obviously a terrific distributor. He's averaging six assists. When you average 30 points and six assists, you are creating a lot for your, your, uh, your club. And he's just looking to shoot more in general. He's averaging four more shots a game. Uh, he's playing some more minutes for them. Um, Mike Brown's boosted his minutes a little bit. And, you know, the Kings, when they get humming offensively are amazing to watch. And these last several games, they've done it. They blew the Cavs off the floor the other night. They blew the Lakers off the floor. On Wednesday night, um, uh, Kevin Herter really got going in that game along with Sabonis. Uh, Sabonis crushed uh, Anthony Davis in the game on Wednesday night. Oof. He had 29 points and 16 rebounds. AD had nine and nine. And frankly, he got five or five or six of those points and four or five of the rebounds in garbage time when the Lakers were t- you tried to make it a game in the fourth quarter. Um, 
I don't, I don't think AD scored in the second and third quarters. So anyway, De'Aaron Fox off to an awesome start to the season. Kings a little bit sluggish because their schedule, I don't think, was super favorable. And then they also had the De'Aaron Fox injury. Yeah, but, finally, uh, a bunch of games. Yeah, and they struggled about Fox big time, right? They lost to the Warriors, and then they went to Houston for a baseball series and got blown off the floor twice, which... Hey, we've talked about the Rockets and and the fact that that's a you know a, a tough team all of a sudden a you know a, a team that has made just unbelievable strides, but defensively I, especially, yeah. But I don't think they're blowing the Kings off the floor with Darren Fox uh, in uniform and like the guys a, an efficient thirty point per game score right now. Super small sample size, five games. But the thing about the three point shooting with him, you mentioned the volumes up. It's a respectable percentage. And the thing with that is like if you if you have to be concerned about Fox as a three-point threat, good luck keeping him out of the paint. He might be the fastest guy in the league, both like first step and just end to end. I mean, it's a he's got one of the best floaters in the game. Yeah. If not the best floater. Yeah. He's and then, you know, last year he, he won the uh, Cajones Factor Jerry West Player of the Year thing. So he's got that going for him, too. Well, and the other the other interesting thing to watch with the sit with the Kings is <clears throat> past couple games. He didn't play as well on Wednesday, but Keegan Murray has finally started going. He was off to a really bad start shooting the three ball, but he had 24 points against the Thunder in a win. He had 25 against the Cavs in a win. Kings are really, really high on Keegan Murray. Yep. Obviously, was fourth pick in the draft last year, and they think he can really take some big leaps as an offensive player. And to me, the thing with Sacramento, the way for them to really level up as a team is if Keegan Murray can be a third star. And then all yeah. of a sudden, you've got the Aaron Fox and Keegan Murray as your big time offensive threats on the perimeter. And then Sabonis becomes your third guy. That happens. Then I think we're talking about Sacramento in a different lens than we are now. And that's why those two games recently against the Thunder and, and Cavs after a slow start, like if he can really get going and become a guy that's consistently going up around 20 points or more over the second half of the year, then combine that with De'Aaron Fox hitting some more threes. Now you're talking about a team that is going to be impossible to guard at times. And I think is a much different level of threat in the West playoffs this year. Right. And, and some bonus, you say third guy, but probably what he does best is pass the ball. That's right. As, as good a score as you could argue, maybe rebounding, but he's a hell of a passer for a big. I think man. he's leading the league in rebounding. He's pretty good at it. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah. very good. He's a very good rebounder. But, but yeah, him, 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 him popping passes at the high post to those guys moving around. I mean, that's a huge part of what they do, and he's really good at it. And Mike Brown has not been shy about putting that uh, responsibility on Keegan Murray. Hey, you need to be our third star, you know, and. I forgot who they were playing earlier this season, but Murray passed up an open look. And, you know, not like a butt naked wide open look, but like the kind of shot they want him taking. And Mike Brown calls for a sub. I forgot who he got off the bench. Somebody came to the scores table. Next time down the floor, <laughs> Murray got a similar look, let that thing fly, swish, turned around the bench and said something along the lines of, you know, bleep you. Mike Brown very happily. <laughs> Brought the sub bag, you know, go, go sit down. We're, we're sticking with Murray. <laughs> that's, that's what Mike Brown wants from him is a bleep you. I am one of the best shooters in the league. And he he wants Murray to have that kind of 
you know, persona, that kind of uh, approach to the game. He wants him to think of himself as a star and expect to perform like a star. Yeah. And, and Mike's just continued to do a fantastic job there too. Like at uh, where this team was a year and a half ago when he took over to where it is now, it's totally changed. And I, he obviously deserves an immense amount of credit for the way this thing looks now. And they're, it's just a, in a totally different place. And like the like the Pacers, they're flying around and super fun to watch. And, you know, uh, I certainly hope we see more steps from Keegan Murray, because, again, more teams like Indiana and Sacramento scoring up buck 35 a game and flying around. It's it's great to watch. And it's it's good for the league. Mike Brown was unanimous in, in the coach old- of the year and got a, a, a guest spot on the Hoop Collective. How much That's more right. Man, possibly- <laughs> That's right. Yes, during during the finals, we were happy to have him. Uh, all right, the last guy I wanted to highlight at this moment, more established player, but having a terrific season to this point, Donovan Mitchell from the Cavs. Cavs are off to a shaky start. They're five and six. Donovan is averaging a career high twenty nine points right now. Um, he's shooting forty nine percent from the field, thirty nine percent from three, which would be the best of his career, and eighty. Uh, 9% at the line. He just, they just had this four game road trip where they went two and two. He had a tough shooting road trip. He was shooting well over 50%, but he went through a stretch of three games where he shot only, I think 33% over a stretch of three or four games. Um, he had a big game on Wednesday night. He had 34. The Cavs um, won in Portland. Donovan is obviously a very fascinating player to watch over the next six to nine months because he elected not to sign an extension before the season, which was not a surprise, did rattle the Cavs fan base a little bit, although I would have told them and have told them the day that the Cavs traded for him in August of 22, they or 22, yeah, they knew that he wasn't going to sign the extension in the fall of uh, 23. Um, the big pinch point will be next year when he'll have one guaranteed year left on his contract. He has a player option for two years from now, but look next year, he, he's either going to extend with the Cavs or you're going to have a problem. And so I'll break him playing that player option. He'll get, (laughs) he'll get a big old raise that year. Right. And that's, you know, that's what the jazz knew when they signed the contract, they knew he wasn't pick up that player option. So basically this is his Next year will be his walk year. You don't want to be in that situation if you're Cleveland. So the Cavs have high expectations for this year after finishing fourth. They upgraded their roster. They thought by signing Max Drews and George Niang, they wanted to shoot a bunch more threes. They have either they have, they have not shot a very um, number of threes. Their offense has been in the bottom uh, half of the league for most of the season. Last year, by the way, they were the number one defense in the league, and they were the number eight offense in the league. And they were, I believe, number three in net rating. And that's how they got there because they were excellent at both ends of the ball. They just couldn't shoot. So they said, we're going to go out and sign some shooters. And their defense has plummeted and their offense has plummeted. Now, they did hold Portland to 95 points, but Portland was on the second night of a back-to-back missing four rotation players. It was not that impressive a performance, all things considered. But Donovan is having an excellent year, as good as he's had to start the season in his career. And Bontemps, the Cavs are underachieving. That's not something to be super worried about in November. But if we're saying these same sentences in mid to late December and early January, we're going to have a different situation in Cleveland. So Donovan is certainly, I don't think any Cav right now, honestly, should be feel great about the way things are going. But Donovan is pulling his part, especially at the offensive end. Yeah, I mean, he's been terrific. And look, there's a lot of stuff here that could and probably should change, right? Darius Garland missed several games with some injuries. 
He is shooting 28% from three on almost five attempts a game. I expect him to shoot a lot better. Another pod guest, George, the minivan, Niang, excellent shooter over the course of his career. He's shooting 28% from three on four and a half attempts per game. I expect that to go up a pretty significant amount as he gets going. So, you know, the, the Cavs are right now 26th in the league in three-point percentage. If those two guys start hitting threes, that's going to go up pretty quick. And then all of a sudden, their offense looks a lot better and the whole situation looks a lot different. But to me, the real thing to watch in Cleveland, beyond, as you perfectly laid out, the situation with Donovan Mitchell and where that goes over the next six to eight months, is, is Evan Mobley. I mean, yeah. Evan Mobley is essentially the same exact player he was as a rookie. And you look across the board, his numbers are the same in every category. He's shooting the same percentage, shooting the same number of shots. He has not developed any kind of three-point shot. He has not developed as a passer. You know, we just talked about Demonis Sabonis to be the hub of your offense. He hasn't done any of that. And so you're talking about a guy who's now a non-shooting four on offense. That might be the least valuable position to have in the entire league. It's not a position that exists anymore. No. And if, if it's like, right, so like right now, it's hard for me to see how he gets to be Jaron Jackson Jr., who is a very good player, but is not a guy that can be, I don't think, I think, don't think anyway, could be a top two guy on a title team. And the whole point of making this Donovan Mitchell trade really was that the thought process was that by this point in year three, you're looking at Evan Mobley as a bona fide all-star and a guy who could be the best player on this team. And then you've got these four guys, you've got Evan Mobley ascending, you've got Donovan Mitchell, and then Maybe this is a team that could contend for a conference final spot or beyond. And then maybe you can convince Donovan Mitchell to stick around long-term. Now you're looking at this team and it's Donovan Mitchell and Evan Mobley's down here. And there's no reason to think Evan Mobley's going to get up to that level. And that, if you're going forward for Cleveland, that is a gigantic red flag and a problem because it really undercuts the whole project that they thought they had going on there. Yeah, real quick, Wendy. This I know this is your turf, but I just want to hit one thing on Mobley. He he's always going to be the guy who's going to determine how high the ceiling was for the Cavs. Just like Bon Tibbs just laid out there. Not only is he not shooting threes, he's one of seven from three point range this season. So a lot of power forwards who pretty routinely get up seven threes a game. That's his what he's gotten up so far this season. He doesn't shoot outside the restricted area hardly at all. He's six of 33 outside the restricted area. Oof. He so is a, a center. Devastating. A center. What you're bringing up is devastating to them. Yeah, he's a spacing killer unless he's playing center. So you've identified. So he is an elite defensive player. Awesome. Uh, made all defense last year. What is absolutely killing the Cavs and killing his growth as into a star player is that he plays on a team with a, with a very important center, with Jared Allen, who doesn't stretch the floor. Mm-hmm. So now it's very difficult to be successful with Jared Allen. Except, you know, it, it's, hard to, you, it's very hard to play Jared Allen with, with, a, with a four that can't space the floor. That's why they right. signed George Nier. Evan Mobley has not proven he could be effective as a, as a significant center, playing center. Um, one of the reasons the Cavs struggled early on, their defense plunged. He had to play a lot of center because uh, I, I would say it's because they had to play somebody else a power forward. Okay, fine. Well, but but he wasn't good enough to to hold them up as a center, which is the whole point. Where again, if you're talking about his advancement as a player, and look, let's go back to the second game of the season. They play the Oklahoma City Thunder. Chad Holmgren is playing against him. Chad Holmgren is playing center. Chad Holmgren has walked into the league 
yeah. and is already a better player at both ends of the court than Evan Mobley. And that, uh, if you're the Cavs, is I a gigantic problem. I don't think he's a better, defense. he's yeah, not I, a better defensive player than Evan Mobley. Evan, Evan, Mo- Evan, Mobley, Evan Mobley is not a center. Chet Holmgren is an effective defensive center. I'm gonna, I understand I'm, Evan Mobley's a really talented defensive player, but being an effective center defensively is a lot more important. Okay, we're not going to we're not going to argue about where he is. We know he's an elite defensive player. The problem they have is he plays with a non-shooting center, so his inability to stretch the floor is devastating. It would already be hard to not be a center in the NBA and not be able to stretch the floor. But if you play with a center who could stretch the floor, it would make things easier on your team. Right. It's actually a miracle that the Cavs were the eighth best offensive team last year because the guy they had playing a bunch of minutes at small forward was Isaac Okoro, who, while he has improved his outside shooting from where it was as a rookie, he's not a guy who stretches the floor either. Teams don't no. respect shot. He shoots like two threes a game. He's gotten his percentage up to like 40%, but he doesn't shoot effectively out there, so he doesn't do it that right. much. And they're playing huge swaths of minutes with three guys who nobody's going to guard out to the three-point line, putting enormous pressure on Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. And those guys carry them to the number eight offense, which just tells you yep. how good Mitchell and Garland were. But they, but to get them to where they need to go as a, as a unit, to be, to, to be as a team, they need more offense. And yes, part of it was investing in Max Struess, who's been up and down. Um, he's had games where he's really helped them, but he's been up and down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... The big issue there is is that when they traded for Donovan Mitchell, it wasn't just a vote of confidence in Donovan Mitchell. It was a it was a vote in the belief that you make your all in trade now because you thought Evan Mobley was going to be a an all star player. Right. That he would have been one of these guys we were talking about. You know, for example, Scotty Barnes. Now, Scotty Barnes is not the defensive player that Evan Mobley is okay. And good. Evan Mobley will probably never be the offensive talent that Scotty Barnes is, but in year three, especially after a disappointing second year um, with his, uh, with his offensive development, Scotty Barnes is having a spectacular year three for the Raptors. He's averaging 21 points. He's shooting 48% from the field. He's exploded his three point shooting. Last year, he took three a game and shot 28%. Now he's taking five a game and shooting 38%. He's having an awesome third season. He's averaging 10 rebounds and six assists. Talk about an explosive season. He's a strong candidate for most improved player right now, Scotty Barnes. That's the type of improvement that the Cavs were not just hoping for, banking on from Evan Mobley. Okay, maybe he's not going to be a 20-point scorer when he's with Garland and, and Mitchell. Okay. Maybe they don't need him to shoot uh, five threes a game at 38%. He's taken seven for the whole year, as you said, McMahon. And so, and, again, and by the way, Evan Mobley has played outside. better the last, the last seven to 10 days. He's improved. His, his numbers are better, but he's still not doing them in a way that's meaningfully what the Cavs need. That 33 shots outside the restricted area. And, like, I do think it's fair to comp him to Chet Holmgren. Long, skinny, um, you know, tremendously talented, impactful defensive players. Chet Holmgren's 19 of 41 from three. He's taken more threes than Mobley has shots outside the restricted area. Mobley is an oh, offensive player right now. It's just a simple fact of the matter. Unless he is, unless you say he's a rim-running center, he is a problem for his team offensively right now. 
Well, and if you just swap, forget whatever. Let's just set the argument from before aside, right? If you just take Chet Holmgren and you put him in Evan Mobley's spot on the Cavs, we feel a lot differently about the Cavs, right? Yeah. That's the bottom line. This guy has walked in. Yes, I know he was hurt last year, so you could say he's technically not a rookie. He's walked in and playing NBA games right away, and he's more impactful than the guy that the Cavs have really built, as you said, Brian, this whole thing around. And that that is why, over the next few months, there's going to be a lot of focus on the Cavs around the league and around whether Donovan Mitchell ends up being unhappy because they are a 500-ish team and the plan as it was supposed to come together is not. And now the timeline is getting very, very truncated. Well, and we've talked you, before. You mentioned that, Mob, that uh, Holmgren's already made 19 threes. And mm-hmm. I understand that Mobley isn't a three-point shooter. Mobley made 22 threes in 79 games last year. Yeah, and, but the, the the hope and the plan, like, trust me, they have been trying to develop him as a three-point shooter. And if he is just a 35% corner three-point shooter, then that changes the game so much. Absolutely. He's not close to it. He's not close to it. Um, well, and you actually have to take enough to be, you have to take enough to be guarded, even if you're making some, right? And he, I mean, he's just not taking any. Like, you're right. taking less than one a game. No one cares. You could be shooting 100% if you're taking seven threes in 10 games. No one cares. Yeah. So Shoot as many as you want. It's, you know, like Gobert and Favors in Utah. Like, there's just not that high of a ceiling on a team with two non-shooting bigs. As, even if they're awesome defensively in the Cavs right now, or, you know, I, I still think they can be a pretty damn good defense team. Obviously, they were last year. But even with two, and Garland's not been good this year. He's a hell of a player. He's a hell of a scoring creator. Even yeah, their 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 guys are going to play to a higher level. Like Niang and Garland and these guys will shoot yeah. better. They're not going to shoot twenty eight percent all year. But it doesn't change the fact that the real problem is the stagnation of Evan Mobley. And right. Unless that changes fast, this whole thing isn't going to go the way the Cavs thought it might. He did lead the league in dunks last year. The man on a lob threat is awesome. He led a, the league in dunks. He's a center. He is a center. And then what do you do with Jared Allen? We've talked about this before. I think eventually they're going to have to trade Jared Allen. I think if they would have done that this summer, there probably would have been, I don't know, we'll see. I I, I still think Jared Allen's a guy who could have some interest. I'm not quite sure where. You know, I know well, the I, issue with Jared Allen is that he doesn't stretch the floor. So his his <laughs> he's obviously a very valuable player, but he's not gonna, he's not seen in the premium light with the guys who can defend at a high level and also stretch the floor. Right. But like the Mavericks, they were looking for a starting center this summer. They had trade talks with the Hawks about Clint Capella. They had trade talks with the Suns about DeAndre Ayton. I think the Mavericks are pretty glad neither of those deals happened because mm-hmm. Derek Lively II as a teenager has been pretty, pretty damn good. And like, there's no reason to not go forward with him as a starting center. I think it might cap their ceiling this year. But as much as like Mobley is going to determine the ceiling in Cleveland, I think Derek Lively might be the same in Dallas. So I say all that just to say like that's one team that was searching for a center this summer that I don't think would be in that market. Um, you know, we've talked about like, hey, honestly, like Allen, if you put Jared out on the Suns, that could actually be pretty scary, but they don't have anything to give up. The other the other team that was super interested in a player like Allen was Portland. Portland wanted to upgrade from Nurkic or, you know, move away from Nurkic. And I think they had interest if the Cavs would ever move Jared Allen. Well, now they've made the move to get yeah. Aiden. So Well, and that's the problem. No matter how good Jared Allen is, there's only so many teams that really need a big. 
And so the value there is difficult. As you laid out, man, the value there is difficult to quantify because he's more valuable to the Cavs than he is to basically any other team. So it's even hard to, especially when you look at his contract, which is really good. So it's hard to even move him if you want to, to reorient the team around Evan Mobley, which is why Evan Mobley needed to become a big time offensive threat. Actually a team that could, that could really use him as his old team, the Nets. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was gonna they, say they, they haven't recovered from uh, at least that position since they trade them. I would call because you know what they do have? They have a ton of wings. I would call them. Yeah, well, but I mean, Nick I don't Cla- think when Nick Claxton's on the when Nick Claxton's on the court, he's he's pretty good. He's dealt with some injury issues, but he's he's a pretty good center. Be a nice tag team. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. Thank you to Jackson um, for all of his work, also uh, helping put together the uh, event in Vegas which uh, I think he's going to be at. So you can get your photo taken with Jackson. Jackson Real star of the show. Unsung hero, Jackson. Nobody um, knows what he looks like because he never puts himself on the screen. He's always... <laughs> I wonder what he's doing during these things. I bet you he's going and like heating up burritos in the microwave and stuff. He presses record and then just... <laughs> <laughs> run on the apartment. He's, uh, he's um, looking at, uh, you know, futures bets for the orange men or the orange. Uh, All right. Thank you to Jackson and Parker, our producers. Thank you to McMahon and Bontemps. Thank you to you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Adios, amigos. 